thank you, One Ancient Hope, for having me, both in your church building and in your homes as well. I'm glad to be with you. There was once a very old man. His eyesight had grown dim, his ears had grown dull, and his knees weak, and and every night at the dinner table, he would shake as he's holding his soup bowl, and uh, food would spill down the side of his face. And he lived with his son and daughter-in-law, and they were pretty disgusted by this. So at a certain point, they said, Uh, Father, can you sit kind of at this other table next to the stove because it's a little gross the way that you eat? So he obliged and he was sitting alone by himself. He had his favorite earthenware clay bowl. And the next day he was eating again, grown frail and weak and he dropped it and the clay bowl shattered all over the floor. His daughter-in-law scolded him and He just sighed. Well, they decided to buy him a cheap wooden bowl so that if he dropped it, it wouldn't break. And so he took the bowl and was eating. Well, the next day, the son and daughter-in-law noticed their son, who was only four years old, and he's picking up wooden scraps from the floor. And the son says, son, what, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building a wooden trough for you and mother to eat out of when I'm big. So the mother and father look each other in the eyes and begin to weep as they realize what they've done to grandpa. So they invite him back to the table. They decide maybe we shouldn't say anything when he spills. And this is the story by the Brothers Grimm those great children's story writers. It's how they choose to illustrate the golden rule. And I'm assuming you all know the golden rule. It's pretty ubiquitous. Treat others as you want to be treated. I grew up in public elementary school, and I swear there must have been a poster in every classroom that had this on the wall. It's everywhere. And a lot of the great religious scholars say that this rule finds its way in one shape or form in all of the world's great religions. Um, There's even this way of talking, this sort of rhetorical trope in a lot of these religions that tries to condense or distill all of the teaching down to one word or sentence. The disciple of Confucius, Zigong, he asked him, is there any one word that could guide a person throughout life. Confucius replied, how about reciprocity? Never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself. And years after Confucius, but still some years before Jesus, there was a famous rabbi named Hillel. And a skeptical Gentile comes up to Rabbi Hillel and says, Rabbi Hillel, if you could explain to me the entire Torah While I stand in balance on one foot, I will convert to Judaism. And so Rabbi Hillel famously says, that which is despicable to you, do not do to another. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and learn it. And a few years later, Jesus 
comes on the scene and he famously says in his Sermon on the Mount, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And again, when asked, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so we can see that Paul is sort of following a line of thought and he uses the same thing when he says to the to the Roman Christians in our text, I'll read again, verses 8 to 10. Let no debt remain outstanding, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Treat others as you want to be treated. I think most of us can kind of get behind that wherever we're coming from. Well, in 1963, George Wallace, who was at the time the governor of the Alabama, he was standing in the doorway of Foster Auditorium at the University of Alabama, and he was standing there because he was blocking the entry of two black students from attending. Now, this was almost a decade after segregation had been ruled unconstitutional, but Wallace was able to run on the motto, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. So he's standing in the doorway. He won't move. So the president at the time, JFK, he decides to write an executive order saying, Senator Wallace or Governor Wallace, you have to move. All right, this is the law. Well, Wallace decides not to. He's going to stand there until finally the National Guard get involved and he finally moves. Here's an excerpt of Kennedy's speech that he gives that day in 1963. The heart of the question is whether all Americans are to be afforded equal rights and equal opportunities. Whether we are going to treat our fellow Americans as we want to be treated. If an American, because his skin is dark, cannot eat lunch in a restaurant open to the public, if he cannot send his children to the best public school available, if he cannot vote for the public officials who represent him, if in short, he cannot enjoy the full and free life which all of us want, then who among us would be content to have the color of his skin changed and stand in his place? He appeals to the golden rule. He even says it in there, treat others as you want to be treated. It's pretty simple, really, and it's hard to argue with. Now, I'm not trying to get into politics here. I'm simply showing how the golden rule was applied to the issue of racism during the civil rights movement of the 60s. And in some ways, it worked. Those two students got to attend the University of Alabama and get an education. Multiple civil rights act, acts were passed 
ending public segregation, and greatly improving voting rights. But if you open up your Instagram feed or go on Twitter or turn on the news, clearly it wasn't enough. It's almost impossible not to feel the racial tension that still exists in our country. Racism is far from over. An appeal to treat others as you want to be treated wasn't enough. It isn't enough. And this isn't a sermon about racism. I'm using that as an example. But we can talk about how if all these world religions can be summed up in this simple statement of the golden rule, why aren't more of the issues of our world resolved? Does the golden rule work? Is Paul right? And I think we can become even more minute here, right? Let's narrow the question. Forget everyone else. Why can't I seem to follow the golden rule? I mean, can you? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? So, a little personal confession here. The last 16 months of my life have been pretty crazy. We had our first child. We, my wife, we saying my wife and I, we both uh, ended our careers that we had for some time. And we decided to move across the country. Then move across the country again. Then again, then COVID. Basically, end of the story, I'm living at my mom's house. This is not how I imagined going into my mid-30s. It's not the ideal situation, at least not for me. Thing is, I've used this to rationalize not loving my neighbor uh, over and over again. Usually subconsciously, these aren't conversations I'm fully aware of in the moment. But when COVID first hit, I remember sort of thinking to myself, well, you know, once I have a more stable career, that's when I can reach out to the elderly or the at risk in my community. And then when there was uh, the racial tension, I remember thinking, well, maybe once COVID's done, that's when I'll go to a peaceful protest or something like that. And then I've said, well, once I have some disposable income, that's when I'll start giving to the church or to any number of organization again. Or once my son gets a little bit older, that's when I can start you know, reaching out to people outside of the church again. My mind has been bombarded with once I statements or if then statements that keep me from loving my neighbor. Can anyone else relate to this, or is it just me? And then beyond this, why Jesus and Paul don't just invite us to treat others as we want to be treated. It's not simply about being nice. No, they sum it up as loving your neighbor as yourself. And love is hard. I think this is at least in part because love cannot exist as an abstraction. It does no good to love in theory alone. The idea of love doesn't do much to our neighbor. And it does little good to sort of love people in our past or plan to love people in the future. No, love really can only exist in the present. And oftentimes, our present is less than ideal. 
Often we feel like we don't have the time or the resources to love well today. And on top of this, in order to love in the present, we have to actually be able to live in the present. We have to be open to what God is doing in the present moment, which often includes risk and vulnerability. It's a lot easier and safer to sort of live in the past or to live in the future. But when I read the Gospels, I'm stuck and struck by the way Jesus is fully present to people in the moment. He's never too distracted by his carpenter past or getting too excited about the glorified future that he'll receive. He's able to pay attention to the people right in front of him. Jesus is vulnerably present in love, even to the point of death. To love our neighbor as ourselves requires a vulnerability to our neighbor in the moment. It also requires a vulnerability to ourselves in the moment and ultimately a vulnerability to God in the moment. And as usual, C.S. Lewis says it most wonderfully. And you may have heard this quote before. I encourage you to hear it afresh. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. I'm sorry, cat lovers. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And if most of us are honest about vulnerability, it probably creates a sense of fear. It does in me. I mean, to be vulnerable is to be exposed, and that can be terrifying. Fear, we know, is one of our most primal emotions. It triggers that part of the brain known as the amygdala, right, which compels us to choose one of two, sometimes perhaps three options, but mostly one of two options, fight or flight. So you have fight, us versus them. Liberals versus conservatives, protesters versus shop owners, blacks versus whites, faith versus science. Someone has to be wrong, and it's not going to be me. Fight or flight. Willfully ignoring the suffering. Deliberately disengaging because it's just too much abandoning responsibility, numbing out on Netflix or junk food or alcohol or any other vice you can justify in the moment. The thing is, fight or flight, neither is love. So do you see why true love of neighbor can seem impossible? Follow me here. True love requires vulnerability which almost always instills fear, 
which creates res- uh, responses that are the opposite of love. Paul himself cries out in Romans chapter 7, earlier in the book, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. Oof. Well, let's continue on in our text. Praise God he doesn't end there. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation now is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Do this, Paul says, this referring to the above verses, which is to love your neighbor understanding the present time. There's two Greek words for time. Chronos, which like our English derivative has to do with chronological time, right? This has to do with the time on our watch, the date on the calendar, the literal rotations around the sun. Chronos refers to quantity, you know, such as a day, an hour, a minute, the quantity of time. And then there's kairos, which is less about the quantity of time and more about the quality of time. And the word in our text today in Greek, understanding the present time is understanding the present kairos. This is the word Paul uses. And this is time that is pregnant with possibility. It's time that is saturated with God. It's when the present moment and eternity overlap, if just for a moment. It's when heaven and earth embrace. It's what we pray for every week in the Lord's Prayer. Have you ever experienced time like this? A moment where perhaps God felt so close, it was as if he was the breath you were breathing in. Sometimes this happens in these big, beautiful life events. The birth of a child, your wedding day, your wedding night, uh, perhaps going to see the Grand Canyon. These moments that uh, are just beyond beautiful, we encounter God. But they also happen in moments that might seem like the loss of life as we know it. This could be the death of a loved one, health problems, being laid off, even living in the midst of a global pandemic. And while these big moments are, of course, important, they are few and far between. They're not actually enough to sustain a life of love. So Paul's invitation to us is to notice the fullness of God in our mundane moments, in our everyday routines. His heart is for us to become awake to God's loving presence in our present moment, even and especially when our circumstances are far from ideal. Love can only happen in the present. So Paul encourages us that God is with us in the present. Understand the present time, he says. Become awake to the present Kairos moment. 
And as we grow in discerning the Holy Spirit's presence, we might notice more and more of these moments in our life. We become awake to the nearness of God, to the salvation that Paul says is nearer now than when we first believed. One author describes this as driving with the windows down to the presence of God. I really like that image. Paul says we are to fulfill the law in love and to do so understanding the present Kairos moment. In order to have a genuine, sustained love of others, we have to wake up to the present presence of God. Paul's talking about waking up, and so he uses this imagery of getting dressed for a new day. He says in our verse, uh, to put aside the deeds of darkness. He's using imagery that says, why are you still dressed in your pajamas? Don't you know that a new day is coming? Don't you know it's almost daytime? Put on daytime clothes. Put on the armor of light. And here's the thing, right? There's always this space of time between when the pajamas come off and the new outfit for the day goes on. You know what I'm getting at. There's always a moment of nakedness. Between the old and the new is exposure. And this is actually when true spiritual change and transformation begin to occur in us. And here's the thing. Paul says, put on the armor of light. Are you catching this? Even with the new clothes on, we're vulnerable. Light always exposes. I think of Paul in Ephesians 5, verses 13 and 14. He says, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. See, in Christ, the light that exposes invulnerability is actually protective. It's armor. I mean, this is a profound metaphor. In Christ, we can be safe and vulnerable at the same time. In Christ, that means we have the courage to love deeply. You see, an awareness of God's presence helps you love your neighbor because it is God's presence where you can learn to be safe and vulnerable at the same time. In God's presence, you can learn to be vulnerable without fear. You are exposed, but you're exposed to a God who is love. I want to read a few verses of scripture that show you what your vulnerability is met with in Christ. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And in Isaiah 41.10, God says to Isaiah, So do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 
Jesus, as he's preparing for his death, says to his disciples in John 14, verse 27, peace is what I leave with you. It is my own peace that I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not be worried and upset. Do not be afraid. And in 2 Timothy 1, 7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You see, if you sit in the presence of this God, in time you can extend true vulnerable love to others in non-anxious ways. You can love with vulnerability, which is to love without manipulation or control. One way, of course, to sit in the presence of God is through prayer. Particularly, I've found the Lord's Prayer helpful for me. So I've been working part-time at a cafe in Chicago these past few months. And uh, because I open in the cafe, I have to get there early. So in the car, I love listening to this particular podcast. It just reads a bunch of scriptures, and then you participate in some, some prayer together. So I'm listening to this podcast. I pull off the highway onto my exit. I get to a red light. And oops, we're at the point where the Lord's prayer has come on. So I have my windows up, stoplight and praying, you know, our father in heaven, et cetera, et cetera. I notice out the corner of my eye, uh, a homeless man standing there with his sign. Anything helps. God bless you. I think is what it said. And uh, I've lived the last 15 years of my life in major cities. And the first thing they teach you is don't give directly to a homeless person, rather give to shelters and ministries that can care for them. And so I've kind of taken that to be true and uh, also I've just grown callous to it. I mean, living in LA and in New York, these places, it's just, it's too much. It's too much to, to even like pay attention to. It, it, it breaks your heart. You can't have your heart broken every day. So I'm sort of standing or sitting facing the stoplight, trying to ignore this man, and I'm praying things like, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, praying for a literal kairos moment, and I'm ignoring him, praying things like, give us this day our daily bread, and I'm ignoring him, and finally my heart breaks. And I think, oh my God, I cannot pray these words literally next to a person in need. So I roll down the window, I say hi, I ask his name, and I realize... I never carry cash anymore. What am I going to do? This is embarrassing. And I realize I work at a coffee shop now. I have a bunch of tips, cash tips from the day before. So I go in my glove box. I get to give this man a little bit of money, drive away, so thankful to get to be a part of the coming of God's kingdom in that moment. Well, the next day, uh, I'm at the same commute, get to the same point, same part in the podcast, praying the Lord's Prayer. This time I realize. I don't have any tips from yesterday. I don't have any cash. I really want to give again. What do I do? So I, I'm fears sort of welling up. And I think I'm just going to drive through the red light. I, I can't just like sit here in front of this guy. It's too embarrassing. I'm going to drive away. Well, luckily I didn't hit the gas pedal just yet. And I realized I have all these day old pastries on my passenger seat. I didn't have any tips from the day before, but I had a bunch of pastries. So I roll down the window. And I say, Hey, would you perchance want a chocolate croissant today? And I swear his smile was even bigger than when I gave him a few dollars. He was pumped. So I give him the croissants. 
Now, the beauty of a moment like this is that I was able to give not out out of my own abundance. None of this was like money that I had actually earned from my hourly wage or anything like that. The cash tips and the leftover pastries were a literal overage given from others. And they reminded me of the very real truth that in God's economy, we are never in lack. I was able to love my neighbor as myself because I was aware of God's presence in prayer, waking me up to the abundance that God had in my life in that very moment. And I hope also that this illustrates that these moments are gifts. God comes to us in grace, not because we've earned his presence or favor. In fact, it was quite the opposite for me in that moment. We do, however, have to choose to intentionally be open to his presence. Now, prayer and the sort of classic spiritual disciplines are really helpful to open to what God is doing in the world. One teacher, James Finley, he says this, that which is essential, namely this love of which we're now speaking, that which is essential never imposes itself, for love is always offered. It's never imposed. And that which is unessential is constantly imposing itself. Think for a minute of the things in your life that are ultimately unessential. They always show up and seem urgent, don't they? They're always vying for your attention. Laundry, meal planning, Instagram, bills, whatever it is. These things you don't have to invite into your life. You don't have to sit down and say, I really want to make sure I have time for this. They just show up and demand your attention. God is always present and wanting to be with us, but we have to choose to wake up and put him on. The final verses in our text today, as I come to a close, they illustrate this. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, rather Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. How many of those who struggle with alcoholism or pornography do you think sit down in the morning and say, okay, today might get busy, so let me make sure I intentionally set aside time to drink. Uh, Let me make sure I add, you know, some time in my Google calendar uh, so that I can drink or do X, Y, or Z things, right? Or do you carve out time in your schedule to meditate on all the ways you're jealous of others? So I want to make sure this Tuesday from 3 to 4.30, I have uh, some time to spend coveting my friend's new car. I'll make sure I put that on there, right? These things impose themselves on us. You do not have to actively choose them. There's always something we have to actively choose not to give our attention to. That's why Paul says, rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This imagery of clothing ourselves with Christ is actually baptismal imagery. 
Paul says in Galatians 3, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. It's this idea of going under the water and dying to self and rising up as you're literally covered in water, you are covered in Christ. To the baptized Christian, your life is hidden with God in Christ. It is in this beautiful union with God in Jesus by the spirit that we are empowered to love vulnerably. I'd love to end with these words from the early church father, John Chrysostom. If you would just hear these words, let them be a prayer for us. For he would have our soul to be a dwelling for himself and himself to be laid round about us as a garment that he may be unto us all things, both from within and from without. Amen.